Just want to say good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. We're continuing our series through 1 Samuel. We've called it After God's Own Heart. So if you could open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. And we'll read the text and we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Chapter 24 in 1 Samuel. Um, you know, it's funny. Someone was asking me this week, how do you feel like 1 Samuel compares or like stacks up to all the other books that we preached? Or at least some of the other ones like Ephesians and Matthew. And I was like, honestly, Ephesians probably was better. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how do you even answer that question? What's better? Every book in the Bible is equally good. Um, but honestly, I think when I thought about the question, whatever book we're in right now is my favorite one. And then I thought maybe for you guys, it's the opposite. Hopefully not. You can think about that later. First Samuel 24. I know a lot of you already love the story of David. So hopefully this has been good for you. I know it's been good for me. First Samuel 24. We'll read the entire chapter. We'll pray. We'll get into it. Let's read. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the, uh, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know, uh, excuse me, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. 
And now behold, I know that ye shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Will you bow your heads? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We come before your word. God, and we know that your word is truth. That your word is living and that it is active. God, that your word can cut us to the heart. God, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet. God, that your word is what we need to navigate this world. So, Father, I pray, God, that you would use your word in our lives today. God, I pray that you would help us to remember who we're sitting before and standing before, that you are the almighty God of the universe. And God, I pray that you would help us to have an appropriate fear. And I also pray, God, that you would help us to receive your grace. God, I pray that we would be moved by what your word says and convicted. And I pray, God, that you'd use this time ultimately for your glory. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's an old Arabian proverb that I read this week. It goes, blind eyes see better than blind hearts. Blind eyes see better than blind hearts. Blind eyes still see pretty bad, though. There's a guy that I read about uh, pretty recently, a guy named Ryan, and he's a musician, I think, in Canada. But he started going blind when he was 18 years old. And it was a gradual process where he started to lose his vision a little bit at a time. But now he's completely blind, can't see at all, but he's learned to live with it for the most part. But he tells a story uh, in his book about being blind that he wrote. He tells a story about how one time years ago, he flew into Chicago for business. And he can still fly. He can still work and get around. He's made it work. But his practice usually is to make it to the room. And then he feels around for the phone The phone, sorry, there's like a fly right here. He feels around for the phone inside the hotel, and then he calls his wife. So this is before he had a cell phone, before smartphones, all of that. So he makes it off the flight. He makes it to his hotel room. He gets inside. He feels for the bed, and then he feels around the bed for the the table, the little like nightstand next to the bed where the phone usually is, and it's smooth. There's no phone. So he goes around the bed. He feels the other side. No phone on the nightstand. So he starts going all around the room slowly, kind of making his way, trying not to bump into anything too hard, trying to create a mental picture of what the room looks like. So he goes to the couch, and then he feels for a coffee table. No phone. He goes to the bathroom. He feels the counter. No phone. There's a desk, which has no phone. So he decides, oh, well, I guess this hotel has no phones in the room. So he goes to sleep doesn't call his wife. The next morning, guess what wakes him up while it's still dark or in the early morning? He's rudely awakened by the sound of the phone in his room ringing. And he picks it up and it's his wife. And she says, why didn't you call me? And turns out there was another table in the room, just a random table that had the phone in it that he never saw. He didn't see it as he walked across the room. And Ryan says, this is the problem. In fact, this is his quote. He says, when you're blind, You just can't assume anything. And the problem is you get a picture in your mind, and if you get it wrong, you just live inside the mistake. Now, can I ask you a question? 
how would you say your vision is? You know, when the eye doctor asks you that question, you don't get offended. You know, when the eye doctor says one or two, when Vin does that for you, we don't get defensive when he says, okay, I think you need a better prescription. But when it's not our physical eyes, when it's the eyes of our hearts, so to speak, when we need help seeing from here, It's not uncommon for people to get so consumed with what they want that they fail to perceive what's obvious to others. For example, it's like the girl that gets so infatuated with this person, with this guy that she just met. It feels so good. It feels so right. And because she feels so in love, she's totally blind to the red flags that are plastered all over his face that anyone with one eyeball can see. It's also not uncommon for people to get so consumed with their read on a situation that they fail to perceive that there might be something that they're missing. You ever hear someone sharing a story about a conflict that they're having with someone else? It's all their fault. Everything that happened, it's because of them. They're so blinded by their own take that they fail to even consider that maybe it's not so one-sided. And it's also not uncommon for people to have this picture of themselves in their mind. I'm a good guy. I'm an intentional parent. I am a servant-hearted, church-going follower of Christ. They have this picture of themselves in their mind. And the problem is, if that picture is wrong, then they are just living their entire lives within that mistake. And you see this all the time. You have good guys who think that they're good guys because they have some buddies that they're nice to, but then you hang out with them a little bit and they treat everyone lower than them, quote unquote, as trash. You have these intentional parents who are only intentional tomorrow, right? Today, they're too distracted. They're too busy for their kids, but tomorrow I'll make more time. Tomorrow I have these plans of trips we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. You have servant-hearted, church-going followers of Christ who don't serve anybody, who don't even go to church most of the time, who barely think about Jesus in their day-to-day, and yet they have this picture in their mind that doesn't match up with the world that any of us live in. Now, can I ask you a question? Could this possibly be you? I know it's kind of an aggressive way to start. Okay, it's something that could even be kind of offensive. You're not my eye doctor. You're just a pastor. This passage is challenging. But the question is, I mean, okay, just think about it for yourself. Think about your own life. Think about your problems, your conflicts, your regrets, your plans for the future. Think about your relationships right now. How are they doing? Is it possible? Is it possible that maybe we're not fully seeing what's actually going on? And the thing is, this chapter in this book is about that. Now, if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, we're rapidly approaching the finale of 1 Samuel. And right now in the story, there are actually two kings of Israel. There are two anointed ones. There's Saul, who was anointed king first. And he is, even though he was anointed by God, he is the people's choice. He's tall, he's handsome, he's a good warrior, he's what everyone wanted. And then you have David, the other king who has been anointed by God to take Saul's place eventually. And he is different in the fact that he is a man after God's own heart. 
Now, David has never made any attempt to take the throne from Saul. He is content to wait for Saul's timing. And meanwhile, he has served Saul. He served him as his bodyguard, as his personal musician. He married Saul's daughter. He's best friends with Saul's son. He's been nothing but faithful, and he's been successful. And the problem is this success has made Saul jealous. I don't even think Saul knows about how David has been anointed yet. He just knows that David is a threat to his popularity and to his power. So for the past several chapters, Saul has relentlessly hunted David down. And David has been on the run for his life. And here we are toward the climax of this book in 1 Samuel 24. And this is actually the first time since it all fell apart that these two men actually interact, really, where they talk. This is where they cross paths. And we find that they are two men moving in two totally different directions. And you know why this is? You know why they pass by each other? It's because of how they see. Not physically, but in their hearts. So let's get into it. We'll break down this text into three sections under three headings. First, the test. Then the truth. Then the turn. First, the test. The test. And this point teaches us something about willful blindness. Okay, look with me at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. We won't spend too much time here, but it's important that we get up to speed as to what's actually going on. The Philistines, Israel's most dangerous enemy, interrupted Saul's manhunt of David. And Saul has to go do what he signed up to be king to go do, which is fight Israel's enemy. So he goes... Now, it's funny because chapter 24 is right after chapter 23, as you might have guessed. Now, it says that he goes out to fight the Philistines. Now, it just says he's back. We know nothing about the battle. Did he win? Did he lose? What happened? Maybe he just ran them off. And that's interesting because the text reflects Saul's mindset. The text give us, gives us very little indication about what happened with the Philistines because, honestly, Saul doesn't really care about the Philistines anymore. He only cares about David. And once he receives word that David is in the wilderness of Engedi, like a dog that picks up a new scent, he's just on the trail again. He's on his way. He's obsessed. He picks up an entire army of 3,000 men to go after David. So verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So, okay, the text is telling us that Saul needed to use the little boy's room. And for all my fundamentalists in here, usually you're not supposed to talk about that. Okay, don't talk about potty stuff, especially at church. But the Bible does right here. Okay, it brings it up. What's up? Well, first of all, the reason why they talk about it in the Bible is because it actually happened. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. It's giving us factual information. This is what Saul did. This is what people do. Okay, we have these books for our little kids that says that everybody uses the bathroom. I won't even say the word. Second, though, the Bible brings up this detail because it's crucial to the plot. You have to understand why Saul would even be away from his men. If you think about it, okay, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Who's the only person in all of Israel that has a higher kill count than Saul? It's David. He's the most dangerous person that you could ever be hunting for. 
Why would Saul leave his 3,000 men and be separated and be so vulnerable? There's only one reason, because in the law of Israel, you have to leave the camp to use the restroom. So he goes to this cave, and it's kind of funny. In the Hebrew, it's even more specific. Okay, it's a euphemism. But it says, Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. Okay, basically what it's saying is Saul went into the cave to drop his pants. Okay, you guys eat fiber. You guys know what I'm talking about. So he finds a cave. He goes in a little bit. I mean, he's not exploring the cave. He's doing his business. And wouldn't you know it, way back in the cave are David and his merry men. Maybe they see him. Maybe they smell smell him. Who knows? Saul has no idea, but they're aware of him. Verse 4. And the men of David said to him, to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So get what's going on here. They say, this is it. This is the open door that we've been waiting for. Just walk through it. How else can you explain this? I mean, this is how we think a lot of times in situations, right? We pray to God for open doors, reveal your will to us. Let me know your path. And once you make it clear to me, then I'll just go through it. So his men are saying, this is it. We've been running from Saul. Let's end this right here. This has got to be a God thing. Out of all the caves, Saul comes in here by himself. It's got to be God. Keep reading verse 4. Then David arose, and he doesn't kill Saul. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, sometimes you've got to slow down a little bit. Imagine how tense the scene would have been. Imagine how tense it would be in a movie if it wasn't just a cheapo Christian made at home movie, but a real movie. David slowly sneaks up on Saul with a sword. I mean, Saul is just squatting there, probably checking his phone, right? He's not even thinking about what's going on around him. And David raises his sword and the music builds. And then instead of cutting Saul down, David just cuts off a little piece of the robe. I mean, think about how sharp his sword must have been to cut through thick cloth like that in an instant. But all he does is cut off a little bit of the robe, and then he backs up. It builds up, but it's anticlimactic at best. But here's the question as we study this text. Here's the question for this point. Why didn't he take the opportunity to end Saul right here? Why didn't he strike him down? Because think about it. Is Saul not an enemy? Is Saul not unjust? Couldn't you kind of say that this is self-defense. I mean, Saul's the one who threw a spear at him. Saul's the one who's been hunting him for his life. Couldn't you justify this decision? Hasn't Saul proven that he, de- uh, that he deserves this? Doesn't it seem, too, like it's a providential opportunity? How could this happen? It must be God. Don't all the counselors you have around you say, it must be God, do it. Literally everything around him, everyone around him is saying, kill Saul. David doesn't do it. Why do you think that is? He's just a contrarian person. He doesn't want to do it because that's what everyone... Why do you think he doesn't do it? You know, I read this, uh, I read about this cave recently. It's called the um, Cueva de, de Villa Luz. That's Spanish. Okay, I know there's people who speak Spanish here. Sorry, I'm Asian and I was born in America, so... I don't say it right, but for those of you who aren't Spanish, it means the cave of the lighted house. It's in southern Mexico. And the cave is very interesting. It's like the kind of cave that you would see in National Geographic and stuff. It's very beautiful. There's like a mini rainforest inside with tropical birds. And there are these streams that feed into it with fish and underground springs and all of these different things. 
you just want to step into the picture when you see the National Geographic picture. But there's one problem with this cave. Okay, in this cave, the springs inside are rich in hydrogen sulfide, which causes uh, there to be these little like currents of sulfuric acid in the water, and it creates this poisonous gas in the air. So the reason why people focus on it isn't just because it's beautiful, but because it's also the most dangerous cave in the world. In fact, if you stepped into it, there's a good chance that you would either get really sick or die. And the point is, sometimes things look too good to be true. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. And sometimes, and here's the thing that's pertinent for us, sometimes we choose what we want to see. And we don't see everything that's there. The temptation is to see what we want to see and not to see what's objectively real. Let me ask you again, why did David refuse to strike Saul down? Verse 5, okay, afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So he feels super bad that he even took a little bit of the robe. So obviously something is going on inside of him. Verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So the reason why is because Saul is the Lord's anointed. Now you might say, okay, so what? What does that even mean? Well, we've talked about this term a little bit, the Lord's anointed. It's a major term in the Bible. In the Hebrew, the word for it is Mashiach which is translated into English as Messiah. In Greek, okay, the Greek translation of Mashiach is the word Christos, which is translated toward Christ. Jesus, the, uh, the anointed one. That's what we call him, Jesus Christ. But it doesn't necessarily mean Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean the person who's going to save the entire world. The Lord's anointed is just a term for the person that God has given divine authority too. So Jesus is the ultimate example of this. David is an example of that. But here's the thing, and we got to understand this. David sees, when he sees Saul, he sees him as also an example of this. Saul is not just a guy. Saul is not just an enemy. Saul is not just a rival. Saul is not just a crazy man. Saul is the Lord's anointed Now you say, Jesse, I already knew that. Okay, I read the text when you read it. I know Saul is the Lord's anointed, but why does this matter to David so much? Well, the Lord's anointed is the Lord's representative. Therefore, to put your hand out against the Lord's anointed is to put your hand out against whom? Against God himself. See, here's the test. Here's the temptation, really. Saul is brought in. He is the Lord's anointed. He is inside the cave. You could reach out and just cut off his head with your sword. Everyone is saying, do it. Your own heart might even be saying, do it. But the truth is, the objective reality is that this person squatting before you doesn't belong to you. See, it didn't matter how providential the circumstances seemed or what the people around him said. David knew the truth that Saul was the Lord's anointed and therefore he couldn't just lift up his hand against him lest he sin against God. So David, even though he stumbled a little bit, he passed the test. Okay, he didn't get a perfect score. 
he did lift his hand up against him a little bit. It's why he's so convicted for cutting the robe. There's some symbolism to this here, if you remember too. Do you remember when Saul lost the kingdom in God's eyes? Do you remember this? Samuel says, God is done with you. He's going to pick a new king to replace you. And Samuel turns away, and then Saul reaches out, and he grabs him to turn him back, and he grabs Samuel's robe, and the robe tears. And then Samuel says, just like this, this is how God is going to tear the kingdom away from you. There's some symbolism here, I think. It's the royal robes. Okay, David kind of got a little too close to the fire, and he got a little bit burned. And David feels bad for lifting even just this much of a finger against the one whom God put on the throne. It doesn't matter how miraculous it seemed. It doesn't matter the circumstances of our relationship. They don't change the fact that wrong is wrong. And this is where it connects so strongly with us. This is where we need to think about ourselves a little bit. If you think about this as a human story given to us by God himself, we face these kinds of tests all the time. We face opportunities, temptations, circumstances, where we could make a concession. We could compromise. We could go against what we've known to be true because of what we see right in front of us. Let me give you some examples. It's like these twins that I used to know. They look the same, as you might expect. Okay, they're identical, I think, or I don't know how twins work, but they look very similar. And they bought one pass to Disneyland for both of them. So one of them, he would go in, and there's a picture of you on the pass. He would go in, and then they would check his face and be like, okay, come on in. And then they'd walk around to like the side of the park where there's an open fence near the parking lot, and then he would pass it through to his twin brother. And his twin brother would go around and come on through a, through a different gate or whatever, and then they would meet up, and they'd have a jolly old time, as twins do. I'm sure it's really fun. They felt like it was okay. Here's their reasoning. They felt like it was okay because Disneyland passes are so expensive. They're crazy expensive. I mean, I don't think if you asked them, okay, is this right to do? They would have said, yes, it is absolutely right. This is righteous. This is just. But they felt like it's okay. It's not that bad. I can steal. I can lie because Disney has a lot of money and they're price gouging us, all of this. For a lot of us, though, this is how it works. It's okay to lie a little bit if the other person can take it. It's okay to steal a little bit if it saves me some money. Maybe it doesn't make it right, but I'm going to overlook the inconvenient details and focus on what I like about this. Or how about this? I know I'm supposed to forgive this person. Maybe you're reading the Bible. You're reading the Sermon on the Mount. You're reading the Lord's Prayer. Forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. But then you think about all the things that they've done against you, how terrible they are. They don't deserve it. And you focus on all the bad that they do. And you conveniently forget. You turn a blind eye to what God's word says. This is willful blindness. And you can see how David easily could have fallen into this trap. You know what? Saul deserves this. I know he's the Lord's anointed, but he's forfeited that right. God has torn away that kingdom from him. I'm the new king. I am the Lord's anointed too. You could see how he could have justified it. Have you ever had a friend who made a bad dating choice because of the circumstances? I know that she's not a Christian, that she doesn't care about God. 
I know I shouldn't date her, but it feels so right. She's nicer than most Christians anyway. We're just so compatible. Okay, now maybe there's more to the story than that, but you can see how we are willfully blind so often. We turn a blind eye to the things that we don't want to see. We focus on what's convenient to us. And I preach to myself. I mean, if you say, what about you? I would say, I've done the same thing. Every spiritual test I've ever failed, every temptation I've ever succumbed to, it involved willful blindness. See, David, in this section, three chapters in a row, there are going to be three temptations that David faces. It's kind of interesting. It kind of foreshadows what Jesus will go through. But what we see here, right here, he goes into the wilderness. And where it, what is the wilderness? The wilderness is the place of temptation. It's where Israel was tempted. It's where Jesus will be tempted. David is tempted right here. He is tested. Will he act on what he knows to be true and right? Or will he bend and break and justify it based on the circumstances around him and the counsel that he receives? It's not an easy thing that David does here. In fact, verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. He misses his chance. But if you see here, it says David persuaded. In Hebrew, it actually says he tore into his men. They have a heated argument. Some of his men are even saying, we'll go kill him then if you're too weak or too scared. Let the blood be on us. We got to kill Saul. And he says, no, you can't do that. So they're, they're fighting, but he's tearing into them. See, it's a struggle. And every person struggles here. Most fall. Later on, David will fall. But right here, he doesn't. Now we'll move on to the second point. But let me ask you, do your convictions bend and break sometimes? And do you justify it? What kind of decisions are you working through right now where you're focusing only on part of the truth and not the whole thing? Second heading, the truth. First, the test. It's a test we all face. Second, the truth, which teaches us something about what it means to see. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. So Saul finishes his business, okay, leaves the cave, and David makes another in-the-moment decision. He runs out after Saul. Who knows what kind of army is out there? Who knows what the danger is? But he runs out and he calls out to him. And notice how respectful David is. He calls him, my lord, the king. He bows down with his face to the earth, to a man who has done nothing but ruin his life. I mean, think about how vulnerable you are, too, to bow down with your head to the earth in front of Saul. Verse 9, and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Now, it would be really easy to skip over verse 9 and, and just to get into the meat of the conversation that they have together. But understand that this statement provides us with some incredible insight into how David operates. David gives Saul the benefit of the doubt here. Do you guys see that? And because we know what's really going on as objective readers of this text, we know that no people planted this idea in Saul's mind. It's Saul's own jealousy. It's because he cut off his own relationship with the Lord by his sin. We know that it's Saul's fault. He has no one to blame but himself. And David knows that Saul's kind of crazy. David knows that it's probably Saul's fault 
But David is willing to let Saul explain here. You see that? And you know what this is called? It's called being gracious. You also see what's going on. David is not someone who jumps to conclusions. He doesn't assume. See, when we assume, what are we doing? When we assume, we're equating our perspective with the truth. When I assume I'm equating my perspective of how things are, my own point of view with what's objectively true in reality, and they are not the same thing. Not exactly. And the assuming person is a very dangerous person to others and to himself or herself because it's not just that you're blind, it's that you're blind and you think that you see. And this easily leads to disaster in all sorts of different ways. Kind of a silly example, but I was reading about this kid who was really mean to babies, who hated babies, which was kind of weird, right? Um, thankfully, he didn't have any weapons or anything, but he would be really mean to like family friends, you know, like the little baby kids. Uh, he would even, I don't know, like smack them around and stuff, which is pretty bad. And his parents had no idea why he would do this, right? Because babies are so like cute or whatever. Um, but one day they found out that the reason why he hated babies is because he had got it in his mind from watching the Lion King that the circle of life meant that for every baby born, a person has to die. So he sees these babies and he's like, you grandparent killers, you like smacking them around. Like he really thought that they were like to blame for the death of people. So on the heels of the last point, understand that your perspective could be wrong. And your convictions even could be wrong. There is an objective reality that is outside of you. And when you have the wrong convictions or where you have the wrong perspective, and especially when you presume, when you assume that you see the entire thing when you don't, you can hurt a lot of people. David isn't a fool. He knows that Saul is dangerous, but he also knows he technically hasn't ever talked with Saul about this. And they actually have a relationship. He doesn't assume. And if you go back to verse 4, you see that David makes it a point not to assume. David didn't assume that just because Saul was in the cave that God wanted him to kill him. What about the men? The men assumed, oh, this is God, verse 4. They said, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's a question. When did God ever say that? We've been through every single verse of 1 Samuel so far. He's never said anything like that. Now, it's possible God said it to him off screen. But the way that David reacts, why David pushes that counsel away, he probably didn't. They're putting words in God's mouth. They're making a jump of logic. Uh, didn't God say he protect you? Of course, that means you've got to kill the Lord's anointed. They're taking God's name in vain. So friend here, in the second point, are you someone who actually works? Are you someone who puts effort into getting outside of your own head and trying to figure out what's objectively true? What's real? Do you pursue the facts, the objective truth? Or if you can admit it, are you someone who does kind of jump to conclusions sometimes? You do kind of assume things about people. You're the kind of person who feels bad all the time about other people kind of assuming or putting bad motives in their hearts, right? The reason why I wasn't invited to this hangout is because this person is a bad Christian, maybe not even saved, right? They don't love me like they should love me. 
If someone gives you constructive feedback, do you assume that they're just a hater? Right? All these haters these days. Do you interrupt people when they're talking and say, so what you're really saying is this, kind of putting the most negative spin on it. Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. David is willing to hear what Saul has to say. He wants to find out the truth. And again, I preached to myself, if it were me, I would have walked out of that cave with the robe and would have said, this is the difference between me and you. You're trying to hum my life for nothing, and I spared your life. David is willing to hear what Saul has to say. Verse 10, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David is explaining exactly what happened while also giving his side of the story. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Okay, he's not holding it up to brag. His face is still to the ground. He calls him my father, which is a term of respect, a term of endearment. He actually is his father. Hey, David married Saul's daughter. He's his father-in-law. And then look at verse 11, the rest of it. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And there it is. And there, this is the key when it comes to the truth. The word that uh, that refocuses everything into sharp clarity. He says, I have not what? I have not sinned. And then if you keep reading, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David brings up sin and the judgment of God. See, sin is more than just disagreements or misunderstandings or preferences. Sin is disobedience to God. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is missing God's mark. See, remember, let me ask you, why does Saul hunt David's life? Is it because David actually did anything wrong? No, it's because he thinks David is disloyal to whom? To Saul. For Saul, treason against Saul is everything. For David, treason against God is everything. Saul is only thinking of himself as the standard, as the most important person, as the main character of his life. But David sees that this is God's world and David is just living in it. And that's the truth. See, so often we get tunnel vision. There's an entire world out there, God's world, but we're just looking at the parts that concern us. We're just thinking about me. How come people are betraying me, letting me down, not living up to my expectations? It's natural, okay? It is natural. But it's also off. So many of our conflicts, broken relationships, the thoughts that spin like a carousel in our heads, they're because we're so focused on ourselves. The truth is, they often have very little to do with God. Our picture of the world oftentimes is wrong. We see everything through the lens of me, and we just live in this mistake day by day. And Christian here, I'll I'll speak to the Christians in this room. I know you're not an atheist philosophically or theologically in terms of doctrine. But do you live like one? I know you're not an atheist technically, but do you worry like one? Do you take matters into your own hands like one? Do you see like one? 
Because if you, okay, if you believe in God, but you don't take into account that God is real when it comes to your marriage or your kids or your financial situation or the state of the world or the country or your problems or your regrets or your anxieties or everything in your life, then you're living like the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Because in reality, what difference does God make in any of those things for you? You're living inside an incomplete and erroneous picture of the world. In a sense, you might as well be blind. See, the truth is, you and I, our lives, we're just water being poured out on the ground. We're going to evaporate before we know it. We're just specks walking around on this huge planet, which itself is just a speck in the universe. I'm not saying you're not important to God. In fact, I think when you realize this, you'll understand just how immense God's love truly is. But what I am saying is just be real. The reality isn't about us. This world isn't about us. Excuse me. This world isn't for us. The people we live around and with, they don't belong to us. The sad truth, though, is that many professing Christians profess Christ, but they see the world as atheists. Verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David is quoting an ancient saying in Israel, out of the wicked comes wickedness. He could be using it in two ways. Either he's saying, look, I haven't done any wickedness toward you. So why do you think I'm wicked? Or maybe he's challenging Saul to look at himself. Look at your own actions. What does that say about your own heart, Saul? But the point still stands either way. It might actually be both. But the point is, you know who you are by what you do. You know who you are by what you do. Take it as a warning. Your theology is revealed in what you do. How you see is revealed in how you step. Your true uh, bibliology is revealed not in what theologians you can quote or how many times you've read the Bible, but in your obedience to what the Word of God says. Your true ecclesiology is not found in how you feel about church or how much people have lifted you up at church. It's revealed in how you actually commit yourself to the worship of God and the serving of his people. So many of us, we don't know ourselves. We look into the mirror of the word of God. We might even agree with what we see. Okay, yeah, I got to work on some stuff. And then we leave and we fix nothing. David says, I won't lift my hand against you. And you know what? If those were just words, it wouldn't mean anything. But David didn't. Verse 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. David has a lowly view of himself. Do you see this? I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. That's not false modesty. He knows he's the youngest son of a regular guy. He knows he's an afterthought. He knows he didn't defeat Goliath. It was God. He knows that he has no home now. He just has a bunch of ragtag guys following after him. He's on the run. And he knows that he is a sinner before God. Verse 15. So he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You want to know what enabled David to say, uh, to stay his hand against Saul? You want to know why David could bow down before this undeserving man in broad daylight? Because he knows it's in God's hands. May the Lord judge. It's God's world. If David's in the wrong, then God will judge, uh, deal with him. And he fears that properly. If Saul's in the wrong, then God will deal with him. And he hopes in that. He has a right, big picture view of the world. 
That's the truth, guys. This isn't your world. It's not my world. The time you have, that's not your time. The family that you belong to, that's not your family. It's not your marriage. It's not your church. It's all God's. Last point, the turn. We saw the test, which David does pass, maybe with like a B. We saw the truth. This is God's world. Lastly, the turn. We'll do a quick the turn, which reminds us that our steps are determined by where we're looking. There's a connection between how we see and how we walk. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Now, you got to picture it a little bit. David's face has been to the ground this entire time. Saul's seen the back of his head. It's a shock to see part of his robe in this man's hands. But even though he doesn't see the face, he recognizes the voice. And what David does, it does something to Saul. Saul hasn't been, uh, even been able to say David's name lately. He's been calling him the son of Jesse kind of disparagingly. But the gentle answer of David turns away Saul's wrath, at least for a moment. And he says, my son, David. And Saul weeps, verse 17. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. Conviction. Because of what David says, the truth of what David says, Saul actually has a moment of clarity. All David has done is good. All Saul has done is bad. Verse 18. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. He hears what David says. He sees what David has done. So look at verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? He knows that this is not normal. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Okay, two things here. One, he recognizes that David is seeing differently. He's not acting like a normal person would. But two, he also recognizes for the first time that David will be king. He says the kingdom is inevitable. And this is where we need to pull over and park the car just for a moment. David was cut to the heart because... Why? Do you guys remember this? It was just uh, a long time ago today, but it's still today. Why was David cut to the heart? Because he had the audacity to lift his finger against the Lord's anointed. But let me ask you this. What has Saul been doing for chapters at a time now? Throwing a spear at David? Hunting David? Having Doeg slaughter the priest of the Lord? who were also anointed to work at his tabernacle? What has Saul been doing except for lifting his entire fist, his entire life against the Lord's anointed? So let me ask you, how do you think Saul is going to be able to stand before God at the judgment? What do you think God is going to say? Think about how shooken up, how shaken up, I don't know, what, how shook David was when he just cut a little bit of Saul's robe then think about how much worse Saul has been. See, to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed is to lift your hand against God himself. Saul has been going against God in every single way possible. Now let me ask you one more thing. What about us? What about us? Christian here, if you are a Christian then you know the gospel. You know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for what? 
for your sins. You read Colossians, the book of Colossians. It says that the record of all of our debts were nailed to the cross, to his cross. Every single one of our sins were the reason why the nails went through his hands and through his feet. Biblically speaking, you are responsible, if you are a sinner, for Jesus' death. And who is Jesus? The ultimate Lord's anointed. How does the old hymn go? It says, it was my sin that held him there. If you are a sinner, your sins are responsible. Every single bad thing that you've done has been lifting your hands against the Lord's anointed. And let me just ask you, Christian, does that bother you? I mean, this is like the most simple question. This is Christianity 101, and yet it's not the easiest question, is it? Does it bother you? Are you cut to the heart? Even Saul weeps here. He recognizes David is more righteous than he is. And honestly, this is like a false repentance. This is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Saul doesn't change. He doesn't even say I'm unrighteous. He just says, subjectively, you're a little bit more righteous than I am. But even Saul weeps. How come we don't weep? Saul weeps. David is cut to the heart. Has knowing what you've done led to repentance? Have you begged for forgiveness? Have you cried out for mercy and for grace? Does it shake you that the Son of God died because of you? And because of me? And because of all who have fallen short of the glory of the Lord? Does it shake you? And if it does, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time ever, if it does... If you're convicted by who you are and what you've done, don't stop there. This point is called the turn because when you are faced with decisions, when you are convicted, after you feel a certain way, you always need to turn and do something. Where are you going to turn? What are you going to do? If you are convicted truly, you are broken by your sin. And I call you today to repent and to believe. And if you turn to him, if you come to the end of yourself and you turn to Jesus in need of salvation, then let me tell you, Jesus died not just because of you, but he died for you. He was innocent, but he gave his life as a ransom. He went into it with his eyes wide open. Verse 21, we got to end this. Saul says, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Saul could have turned and forgiven the perceived wrongs of David. He could have said, come back home, David. All is forgiven. Nope. He says, swear to me that you will care about me. Saul's back to his old hat, even here, thinking about himself, tunnel vision. But verse 22, David swore this to Saul. He says, yes. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David swears to do the right thing, even though Saul doesn't deserve it. And though he doesn't trust Saul, notice Saul goes home, but David can't. And he doesn't. And this is the key moment where they both turn to go their own ways. Excuse me. And the direction they turn says everything. Saul just goes back to his own life. But David has to go back to the stronghold. But what is David's action here as we end this chapter? What does David do here at the end of this chapter? He swears that he will protect 
and keep alive Saul's line. And we find out later he keeps his promise. I was reading the book of Esther a couple weeks ago, and I read it before. Probably the craziest book in the Bible, honestly, with all the other books of the Bible. Um, but I was reading Esther, and I never noticed this before. So if you don't know the book of Esther, it's the story of these two Jewish people who are in exile. This is hundreds of years after David. The Persian Empire rules the entire world, and Esther and her cousin Mordecai are transplants. Okay, They're exiled from Jerusalem. They're all the way in a far-off land. And God uses them to save the entire nation of Israel. Okay, Esther becomes the queen. Okay, if you don't know the story, you can read it. It's pretty short. It's, again, the craziest book in the Bible. You could read it. But I was reading the beginning of Esther, and I noticed something I never noticed before. And maybe you already know this, but if you don't, I'm just going to tell you, okay? And I went to seminary, too. I probably was not paying attention that well. Eric probably distracting me or something. Um, but it says that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish son of Benjamin. Now, what was Saul's father's name? You guys remember this? Kish of Benjamin. So I was like, wait a minute, same Kish? So I looked into the Jewish Targums, the commentary, the ancient commentary on the Old Testament, and sure enough, Esther and Mordecai are descendants of Kish through Kish's son Saul, through Saul's son Jonathan. See, David's one act of obedience to God and choosing to keep his word even though Saul doesn't deserve it, one act of trust that God would be with him even if he let Saul go, this one little thing led to the salvation of all of God's people centuries later. See, here's the thing. We don't always know what our actions will accomplish. You might not know if you're making the right decisions. You might have a lot of regret. You might feel like you're living in a mistake right now. You might feel like you don't know yourself super well. But what this text points us to is just do what God tells you to do. Keep your word if you give your word. And God will take care of the rest. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet. Just walk in that next step that God's word tells you to go. We'll close here. There's an old Arabian proverb, blind eyes see better than blind hearts. There's another story that Ryan, the blind guy, tells or or told in his book, I guess. He was with his daughter when she was young, and he lives in Canada, uh, and they live near the woods. um, And there are bears every once in a while. So he's outside with his daughter, and he's kind of carrying her around. And then she says, bear. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. Because I'm blind, I live near the woods, and my daughter just said bear. And she starts getting more and more upset. She's like, bear, bear, bear. And he's like, I don't know, he just starts walking, like, in a direction. Like, I don't know where I'm going, but I got to get out of here. Wherever I'm, you know, he starts panicking a little bit. But then he thinks, wait a minute. And then he reaches out, he's holding her, he reaches out for her hands. And she had been holding her teddy bear that he gave her, but it wasn't there anymore. So she dropped it somewhere, and she was looking for it. So he says, teddy bear, and she's like, teddy bear. And he's like, phew. And then she said, real bear. No, she didn't say that. But he says that silly stuff happens to him all the time, stuff like this. But here's what he said. He said, it took me a long time to come to understand that blindness actually wasn't the main problem. The main problem actually was embarrassment. And that's it. Because the truth is, none of us are all seen. None of us are all knowing. We're all flying blind in some way. We all have an incomplete picture of the world, of ourselves, of everything. We don't see the future. We can't change the past. But there is someone who knows what it all looks like. There is someone who stands above it all, 
there is someone we can trust and he tells us what to do. The key, guys, isn't to become all-seeing. Jesus does make blind eyes see, but it's more than that. The key is to humbly recognize that maybe you need help. To not pretend you know more than you do. To maybe admit that maybe you assume a little too much. To not live as if you are the center of the universe. To make it a point to repent of tunnel vision. And to walk by faith, do what's right, and live in light of his reality. And you'll get where you need to go. Let's pray. Father, as, as I look at these chapters and at, at these verses in First Samuel, God, I see so much of Saul in me. I see so much more Saul in me than I do David, actually. And God, maybe there are people here who feel the same way. God, maybe we have been so focused on ourselves that we've forgotten you. God, maybe we've gotten wrong pictures of things in our minds and we've been living inside these mistakes, thinking higher of ourselves than we ought, thinking worse of others than we ought. God, I pray, God, that you would forgive us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to change. And God, we're so thankful, God, that you are a merciful God, that you sent your anointed one, the King of kings, to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve, and to offer us life. And God, I pray, Father, that that message, God, that that person, Jesus Christ, would be our hope. All glory to him. We praise him in Christ's name. Amen.